Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. As Neil said, we're in a new series. The series is officially titled What Love Does. And so the purpose of the next few weeks is to try and unpack some ideas that we can practically put into place about how we can practice love. The idea is that love is a verb and therefore it requires something to be done in response to it. If we love, then we do. And in fact, before we get into John chapter 11, which is our primary text for this week, I'm just going to read some verses from 1 John chapter 4. So in John's Gospel chapter 11, but before we get into that, I'm going to read some verses from 1 John chapter 4. Don't feel the need to turn to it. Feel, feel released to just receive that word. It's great to have Alison back. She's there. She's flicking through the Bible frantically. Who would know she'd have like a baby like 72 hours ago or something? So 1 John 4, verse 7, it says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. My kids, as you will have noticed, they have a mixture of me in them, and they have a mixture of Nikki in them. Now, I'm hoping as far as their looks go, they get more of Nikki than me. But maybe, just maybe, there might be a little bit of something good in me which gets passed on to my children. And the reason I can expect something of me to be passed on to my children is because they carry my DNA. Within me, there is something passed on through to your children that will make them a little bit like me. You're probably saying, yes, all the naughty traits are probably the Aikerman traits. And all, the, uh, all of the other bits that are good are from the bath gates. And so we can expect children to be something like their parents. And John is saying here, we don't know if it's the same person who wrote... The Gospel of John, probably not, I, I, I imagine, but they both are Johns. It's not unusual to find two Johns in the ancient world. So the writer here is expressing the fact that if you know God and you are born of God, if you are God's child, then there should be an expectation that something of him will be in you. And the primary thing that you should look for as an evidence that you are born from the seed of God, that you carry the DNA of God, should be that you love. If you don't see love, then you don't see God. And if you don't see God, then were you born of him? Are you his child? Now I'm going to turn over to John chapter 11 now because let's gonna, we're going to ground this now in a, a, a situation that Jesus faced how Jesus, who being the Son of God, the perfect representation of God, so much so that Jesus can say, anyone who's seen me, they've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father would do right here and right now, 
I'm embodying and I'm enacting that out. So if you look at me, you see what the Father would be doing. So the way Jesus um, ministers and speaks and talks in this moment when he meets um, Mary and Martha, the death of Lazarus, is what the Father would have been doing in that exact moment. So in John chapter 11, we see this encounter where we're going to see how love operated in the life of Jesus as he ministered to some of his friends. Now to give you just a little bit of backdrop about the characters in this narrative here, um, we have Jesus, of course, as I've just mentioned. We have some of his disciples who would have been traveling with him and some of them are spoken about, particularly Thomas who uh, is mentioned there. He is, he's, he's very much at the side of Jesus. He thinks Jesus is gonna go to Jerusalem to, to die and he says to, to the other disciples, let's go with him so we can all die alongside him, so we can get something of the fact that Thomas would have been quite a courageous guy, at least at this point in the story he is. And we have Mary and Martha and Lazarus who are the other main characters in this narrative. Now their names all have meaning. Martha means lady of the house. So is it any surprise that when we have the one of the other three instances that these, these people appear in scripture, Martha is busy doing stuff in the house and Mary is sat at the feet of Jesus. And Mary actually means wise lady and Martha means lady of the house. And Lazarus means um, the help of God, having or wanting to receive the help of God, which he is about to receive the help of God. What else do we know about this family? Well, we know Mary and Martha are sisters. We know that they have a few dollars as well because another time Jesus meets with them, Mary gets a, a large quantity of perfume and she pours it on Jesus' feet and she wipes his feet with her hair. And Judas says, shouldn't we have sold this perfume and given the money to the poor? It's obviously quite a, a sizable amount of money it would have required to buy all that perfume. So they had a few dollars and they're living together as sisters so we can probably expect that their parents had died at some point for them to be living as sisters in the same home together. Some commentators suggest they were actually quite young as well, maybe teenagers at this time, having been left an inheritance, running a home because Jesus would often go and stay with them, spend some time there, which meant it was probably quite a sizable home back in those days to accommodate Jesus and his disciples, anyone else that was traveling along. So they had some money, they were sisters living at home, they may have been quite young, they may have been left the, the estate from their parents, and Martha seems to be the one that seemed to take charge of what was going on in the home, probably as the elder sister of the two. But their brother, Lazarus, is now sick, and of course, if you know somebody who has a 100% um, successful rate of praying for the sick and seeing them healed, Jesus, you're going to want him around when one of your family members is sick. So they send for Jesus. Strangely, because Jesus is this guy who has a reputation for being loving and compassionate, the text says before the part we're going to read in a moment, that Jesus decides to stay where he is for a few more days. Jesus waiting away from the situation, in fact hearing the information that Lazarus was sick and then deciding to not go and minister to him, 
seems to be the opposite of loving. But God has something more powerful in mind than simply healing Lazarus from a sickness. And we're going to read now from verse 17. Now Jesus, he arrives on the scene. He says, when Jesus arrived, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Why is that significant within Jewish custom? They would, after three days, go and make sure that the body was properly, properly dead, that they hadn't got it wrong. They didn't have the same kind of medical information in that time. So they would go and check the body after three days, make sure that they hadn't just got a, a terrible concussion or something like that. So the purpose of noting four days was significant because the writer, John, he wants the readers to know that Lazarus isn't um, supposedly dead, he's dead, dead, he's gone. And in fact, there was a tradition that if there was gonna be a resurrection of the dead, and in some parts of Judaism, not in all parts of Judaism, they believe that people could be raised from the dead. We know Elijah was involved in the raising of a dead person. So it happened in Jewish theology that they recognized that. They also believe that the spirit would hover around that body for three days. And then if they weren't resurrected, then at that point, the spirit would depart to go to uh, um, part of Sheol, the grave, but not the part that was for the naughty people, the part that was for the good people. So four days is significant. It has theological weight and value to understand. Verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews, and that's the other parts of the extended family, had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. This is interesting. When we read about Mary and Martha previously, Martha is in the kitchen being busy and Mary's at the feet of Jesus. Now Jesus is coming back to deal with the situation from being away. It's Martha who leaves the position of being busy in the house and goes to meet Jesus. And Mary is the one who remains back at the property. I think this probably gives us an insight into their personality a little bit. I think that Mary, the fact that she had previously gone to spend time sat at the feet of Jesus in the other encounter that we read about in the text, showed that she was quite a bold and courageous person. She had quite a lot of confidence because she took the posture of a disciple at the feet of Jesus. So she had a, a kind of a, a, an emotional strength to her, but that also meant that when the chips were down, she was more prone to being down in the dumps than maybe if she had been a bit more even, uh, um, sort of emotionally sort of tempered as, as Martha. So Martha says to Jesus now in verse 21, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even though he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying to her in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And as soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. 
Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit. In fact, the original language there basically means his guts were torn open with compassion. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And then we get the shortest verse in the, in the scriptures, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some said of him, couldn't he who opened the blind eyes also have kept this man from dying? We'll finish there. The story ends, for those of you who don't know the story, Lazarus is raised to life again. Wonderful. But it's a couple of points about how we see love demonstrated in this narrative that I want to focus in on. And the first thing I want to say is that God's love works to his plan and not to our pain. God's love works to his plan, not to our pain. Now, if you've ever seen any war movies, now, Neil, probably actually unique in that he's seen a few wars, let alone watched a few war movies. There's this phrase that you often get at the at the part of the of the of the film where there needs to be a rendezvous at a certain point, when one set of soldiers or a soldier needs to meet with another set of soldiers or another soldier at a certain point at a certain time because they're about to go into separate directions. And they have this phrase, synchronize watches. And the reason they say that is they want to make sure that both of their watches say the same time so that when the appointed time comes, one of them won't be late. That they will be there at the same point in time. They synchronize their watches. In fact, my timekeeping has been so bad in the past, Lucas Dewhurst used to give me a time 15 minutes before a meeting started and he wouldn't tell me about it and I then he'd think, well, at least the guy will be on time and he will arrive in the right place rather than 15 minutes after everybody else in the meeting started. I'm better at it now, he doesn't do that, but he did do that previously in the past. Because it's important if one person's meeting there or a group of people meeting there and you've arranged a time that you're at the appointed time at the same time. Now the time that the family, Mary and Martha, thought that Jesus should arrive was at the time when Lazarus was sick and they were worried and they were anxious and they were feeling emotionally in a situation of pain. They felt that their need, their pain, their problem should be the determining factor as to where Jesus should be. If he is loving, then he will be here now because we're in pain. And I imagine most of us in the room at some point have kind of cautiously looked up to heaven and kind of said to ourselves, God, if you love me, then you would be here now fixing this mess. We're kind of taking some sort of moral high ground before God saying, if I was you, I could do your job better because I wouldn't leave me in this pain. 
But Jesus shows that when there is a plan that is bigger than our situation, he is prepared to wait and allow us to feel uncomfortable and set his clock, his watch, his timing by his father's plans, not by our pain and our needs. So the first thing we can understand about God's love is that he is working to a plan. And therefore, we should never assume that God is not loving just because God doesn't come through for us in the way and in the timing that we thought he should have done. And so the understanding, the vision that we need to see for love is that sometimes through hindsight, we will recognize that God's wisdom was in his waiting and not him kind of running along to the, the clock that we have set for him. So love works to a plan. And as a pastor, sometimes people come to you with their problems and they want you to fix it now, now, now. Quite often because they've waited a long time before they've told you about the problem. They're trying to fix it or remedy it themselves. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But of course, when you were hearing about the situation, quite often there have been weeks, if not months, that the problem has been kind of brewing and building momentum. But when it comes to the point of crisis and it's presented to you, it's kind of like, we need to fix this now. And you feel harsh in saying, well, actually, we might not be able to fix this now. We, we, need to, but we do need to establish a plan. Because if we don't do this to a plan and we just kind of just rush into the situation, we could cause more problems than we solve. We need a plan in order to deal with the situation. We can't simply rush in and do whatever we think and hope it will go away. So love works to a plan, even when it's moved to a with compassion to somebody's need. So that's the first thing we need to do. We respect people's needs, but we move to a plan. The second thing I think we can understand about love is that love enters the moment with people. It doesn't simply, in faith, look past the situation. Now, in charismatic Pentecostal churches, which I'm a card-carrying, flag-waving, shofar-blowing member of that group, we have this tendency to see faith as an opportunity, first and foremost, to be able to look confidently past the problem to a destination point after that problem is resolved. We're going to get through this. We're going to get to the top of the mountain. We're going to get through the storm. We're going to get to the other side. We're going to see this thing resolved. We're going to get there by faith, by faith, by faith. That is not wrong. That is a part of faith. But Jesus, knowing that within hours he's about to resurrect Lazarus, he still weeps with those who were weeping. He didn't even have to say to Martha, yes, we can have faith that in the resurrection, the general resurrection, you will be reunited with Lazarus. And he didn't say, well, actually, we're going to gather the disciples, we're going to pray and fast, and maybe in a week or two, Lazarus will come out of his grave. He knew that before tea time that night, that man was going to be sat at the table with them eating dinner. If any man should have been excited at that moment, it would have been Jesus because he knew what was going to happen. And yet he chose to weep with those who were mourning. 
So while love works to God's plan, not just rushes ahead in accordance with people's pain, faith, of course, sees past the difficulty. Faith sees beyond the pressure point. Faith sees through the storm. Faith sees us at a destination beyond what is going wrong. But love meets people in the midst of their pain and empathizes with them seeks to kind of bond with them in that moment, it doesn't rush past all that because it dignifies the moment when you meet people where they are in their problems. I put a post up on Facebook, maybe about a week ago, just in my preparation uh, for this because it, it resonated with what uh, I'm trying to say through this point. And it was from a therapist, a Christian therapist in America called Dr. Henry Cloud, he's well known, uh, very well respected, has a lot of good things to say. And he talked about in church how we often gaslight people with problems. Now gaslighting is a phrase which is used quite a lot in a, a common um, sort, of, sort of speak language vernacular. Uh, and it has to do with presenting an alternate reality to somebody, uh, and usually a lie to somebody as if it's the truth, to get your agenda met. Now, let me give you an example. Typically, the idea is that, for example, a lady, part of a sort of marital relationship, like husband and wife, the lady and the wife, she feels like the husband's tone is wrong, or he's irritable or he's fractious or he gets angry too quickly and rather than recognize that the guy would say something on the lines of oh no this isn't my problem this is your problem that didn't really happen I wasn't like that it must have been something hormonal going on with you I don't need to take the blame for this it's not my issue this is your issue or you know why did you think when I when I picked up the phone you know, I, I, I'd arranged to, um, to be with you at a certain time in a certain place. No, you told me you were going to be there. No, 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 I never said that to you. And they did. They just said that they didn't. They're presenting the facts in such a way to get their agenda met, even if it means the other person doubting their sanity and seeing things differently. It's called gaslighting. Now, Henry Cloud isn't saying that, you know, when we, we are not honouring and dignifying the emotions that people are feeling by trying to rush past them and tell them, oh, you'll be fine, you'll get over it, or there's plenty more fish in the sea, giving them some sort of trite response, that we're doing some, something quite so sinister as a husband, for example, kind of causing the wife to doubt her sanity because he keeps uh, reinterpreting events in a way that makes her doubt her perspective. But he is saying when we don't allow people the opportunity to share what they think and what they feel and what is going on for them and the pain that they're in, we are in effect not recognizing and honoring the fact that they are going through something right now that they need to share and get off their chest. They need to not be driven through to a point of applying a solution or seeking to interpret the problem and set out some sort of seven point plan of how it's all going to be fixed. You just need to enter into the moment with people. Listen to what they've got to say. Even if you think it's a load of gobbledygook, it doesn't matter. You'll get on to that later. Jesus is showing that no matter what the outcome is, even if it's one that is good, 
it's still loving to enter the moment with people. And the third thing I would say is that our actions should reflect the love that others show to us. So the first point is that um, God, love works to a plan. The second point is love enters into the emotions of the moment. The third point is that we should be constantly looking to, uh, to outwork and to practically apply the love that we have received. Now I said there were three times in scripture that Mary and Martha are mentioned. The first incidence is where Jesus goes to the home. Martha's busy preparing stuff in the kitchen as the lady of the house. Mary sat as the, at, the, at the feet of Jesus in the posture of the disciple. They have that encounter. They have this encounter here where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And then there is another encounter in the next chapter, chapter 12. I've got this lovely little uh, uh, image here. I'll read from um, verse 1 and 2 of chapter 12 in John. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, the one who Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha was serving them, lady of the house again, back into type and role. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. What a wonderful scene. I wonder what they were talking about. I wonder if Jesus said, look, hush on all the heaven stuff. I know you've just been there. It's really exciting. It's very, very cool. But some of these guys aren't ready for all of that yet. A little whisper in his ear. It's really, really good up there, isn't it? I know, I know. But just, you know, just tone it down in your conversation. They would have been chatting about stuff because Lazarus would have just had a first-hand encounter with what Jesus knew and the place that he had come from. So they sat at dinner, and it says, Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure and expensive nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet, and she wiped his feet with her hair, so that the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I think we're dealing with a big house here. I think we're dealing with a big house here. It was hosting a lot of people. It was a point of celebration. But such was the weight and the expense of the perfume, the whole house was permeated with this smell. Because when we have seen love demonstrated to us, in the previous chapter, Mary had seen the Lord Jesus raise her brother from the dead. And now she's, I, I've got to do something about this. I'm going to take the most expensive thing that I have and put it on the feet of Jesus because I want to love him in response to him loving me. He came to my home, to my family. He came under my roof and he raised my brother from the dead. He entered into my moment of pain. He wept with me. He understood the misery that I was in. He took me through that. He brought me out the other side and now he's dining in my house. I can't just let this moment go past. I've got to show love in response to the love that was shown to me. And then she pours the perfume on his feet. It irritated a few religious spirits, I'm sure. We read on in the text, and we haven't got time to go into this now, that Judas said, oh, we should have given this money to the poor. But that's because he was a thief, the text tells us, and he knew that the money was probably designated to the poor was going to go in his pocket. Jesus says the poor you're always going to have with you. He wasn't, he wasn't offering any dignity to people who were poor. He was just saying this is a unique moment where God is in your midst. He showed love to you. Now you get to love him in response. 
My final point is this. Does your life reflect the love that God has shown to you sufficiently? Someone says to you, do you love God? You would quite quickly say in response, yes, of course I love God. Mary showed that she really did love God, love Jesus, because she was prepared to demonstrate it by the mo with the most valuable thing that she had in her possession. She offered it over to him. She knew that love verbally had to be matched by love practically. And not just simply doing something. She was already allowing Jesus to stay in her home. She was already extending hospitality. But it wasn't enough. She had to take the best of what she had and bring it to the feet of Jesus. And so my final point is this. If we want to know what love does, love gives its best to others because of the love that God has given to us. If you want to know what is the, is the right thing to do to show love to the people in Ukraine through an offering next week, we will see, and this is a challenge to you, it's not a condemnation, we will see how you respond to that. Now, I'm not saying remortgage your house or sell your car. All I am saying is that if you love God and recognize what he's done for you, now you see a need, it's crunch time to see how, how you can respond to that. As I said, it's not giving beyond your means, it's recognizing what you do have, often at a cost or a sacrifice to you, and being serious about how you can show love to others. Because faith without works, or love without works, is dead. So our lives this week, we need to love practically. We need to love passionately. We need to love sacrificially. We need to love as we have been loved. We need to enter people's pain. We need to not simply try and drive them through their problems to a plan. But we also need to recognize that God's timing is perfect. And to not doubt his love because he has synchronized his watch to heaven, not our problems on earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the, we have an opportunity to know the love of God. Not just in our mind or in a concept or through words on a page. But by your Holy Spirit, you can make that love alive in our hearts. And I just first of all, Father, pray for anyone in the room who may find it difficult to love others because the love that they have received in years gone by has been corrupt or it's come with conditions, or it's been used to manipulate and to leverage someone. Those things cause scars and lasting pain. I pray, Father, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will minister healing into those wounds, that you would restore what has been broken, that you would release a, a, a kind of a balm from heaven just to soothe the soul of those who have never known love in a good way. And I also pray for all of us, God, we'll have a fresh touch of revelation of what it is to be loved by you. Whether we feel that we've been loved well, naturally speaking, in the past or not. Whether we feel that our parents have been good to us or not. Or our friends have been good to us or not. That God, we would have just a, a fresh sense of what it means to be loved 
and cherished by Almighty God. That we would live lives that show the DNA of the spirit that's in us. That we would reflect our Heavenly Father through the way that we live our lives. Help us to love as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, Amen. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.